So we've been looking at the uh, uh, Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to continue that today by looking at Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. And, and this is a text about uh, God sending prophets to his people to speak to them. <clears throat> and so um, one of the things I think that would be good for us to pray about today is not that God would speak to us, because he already has, Right? Uh, sometimes we treat the word of God like it's words until I have an existential crisis and then suddenly it jumps up and grabs me. <laughs> no, the truth is it's the truth. It's God's word all the time. Uh, and it stands objectively that way, right? And so uh, it's important for us when we hear that uh, and recognize that, that this is, this is serious business, right, uh, to deal with. A God who speaks to us because God doesn't talk to himself in the Bible. <laughs> he talks to us, right? Uh, and so uh, it's important for us uh, to hear, uh, to respond. Uh, and, um, and that's just hard. We're so distracted, right? Um, and... Uh, so many other things competing with that. So I want to stop now before I read the text and pray that uh, God's word would be clearer and louder to us uh, than the uh, things that we'd rather listen to. Okay, so uh, let me uh, let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thanks today that uh, you're not silent, but you speak to us. Thanks for the scriptures. Thanks for Jesus Christ. Thanks for your spirit. And so as we uh, hear about uh, the way you responded to your people's laziness and self-serving ways and their unbelief um, by sending your word, I pray that you would uh, renew us uh, in that uh, this morning. Lord, you know us, you know our weakness. Uh, we are no better than these people that we read about in the book of Ezra. In fact, we, we might even be... Uh, uh, well, you know us. And so uh, bless our time today in your word. Uh, turn us from ourselves and from death uh, to life, to joy, uh, to the great uh, mercy and love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Uh, the text is uh, printed uh, in the Bible, uh, or in the Bible, it is in the Bible, and it's uh, also in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens uh, behind me. Uh, Ezra 5, 1 to 2, this is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And so uh, today is the 16th of February, so that means the year is 47 days old. And that means that all of you probably who did New Year's resolutions have failed in those now. Or if you haven't failed, uh, uh, you're about to. Or um, 
you're like me if you have failed as somebody else's fault, right? You can always blame somebody else for for your failure. But then I imagine, because I know you well enough, that there are some people here who have a stiff upper lip and have strong willpower and are still hanging in there on their resolutions. Sometimes it seems like Christianity, the gospel, the work of Christ, is only for people with willpower. Right? Right? Uh, and since, you know, um, I could test that willpower by putting a chocolate chip cookie in front of you today or uh, something like that, the, or whatever your particular weakness is, um, uh, the truth is um, we fail a lot at the things that we know we should do and even things that we resolve to do and even things that we know that God wants us to do. So what do you do with failure? I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm not going to talk about what you do with failure. I'm going to talk about something more important. I'm going to talk about what God does with your failure. Because truthfully, that matters a lot more than what you do messing around with your failure, right? Um, Because we manage our failures. We cover our failures up. Uh, Like I said, we blame other people for our failures. Um, You know, one of the best ways, one of the best people to blame for your failures are, you know, your parents. Especially, you know, if they're already gone because you can blame them and they're not going to say anything back to you, right? So, so, so the fact is, um, let's think a little bit this morning about what God does with our failures. Um, as we've been reading in the book of Ezra, uh, God has done a great work in fulfilling his prophetic word uh, through Isaiah and Jeremiah to bring his people from exile, where they've been for almost 70 years, back to Jerusalem. And 42,000 of those people returned to Jerusalem from uh, exile. Uh, the, t- the city is a ruin. The temple uh, is broken down, uh, hardly one stone upon another. And so the people gathered there, They've, they're only there for a few weeks, and they celebrate the Feast of Booze. They reestablish the, the, the work of God there. They raise money, and they send off for stones and for wood to rebuild the temple, and they get after the program. They have a giant worship service that is loud, that resounds throughout the countryside. It gets the attention of the enemies of the people of God who begin a campaign of intimidation and lying and slandering. And so it begins to slow the work of rebuilding the temple until we get to, as uh, we'll see here in, uh, at the end of chapter 4. Scott, go ahead and put, put my notes up there. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. In other words, they failed. Right. The whole reason why they're back in Jerusalem, the whole reason God is bringing them back is to rebuild it and to rebuild the temple. And it stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. As we'll see, if you do the math on this, uh, it's been about 16 years and it just stopped. 
Nothing happened. 16 years. 2004. What were you doing in 2004? 16 years ago. God had a purpose for these people, and they've ignored it. They've not done it. They've failed in it now for 16 years. So what's God going to do about it? What's he do with your failure? Right? Well, uh, we learn a lot about the character of God when we see what happens here to uh, these people's failure. What he does is he sends prophets. Amazing. Amazing. He sends his word. He sends people to go and preach. Now, that's, you know, I know what you think about preaching. And I know you think that, you know, out of all the things that could could happen, you know, the the fact is preaching seems kind of lame. Send an angel. Send lightning from heaven. Send, you know, a... A giant or, or just just do something really dramatic. But what he does is he raises up prophets to simply come and preach to the people of God. Now, that is that is a you know, one of the things that Paul says in the New Testament is that the work of God is largely done through the weakness, literally the foolishness of preaching. Right. And so we we look at that and we think, oh, no, you know, I, I love it when uh, uh, when I hear kids at the end of the sermon, like, when's this going to be over? You know, and uh, when you know, when are when are we going to be done? Um, uh, my my brother uh, went to a, a, a church uh, in Charlotte for years and years and years. And when the pastor would get up and he was long winded, uh, he's still long winded. He would get up and he would start his sermon. He would take his watch off and set it on his uh on the on the pulpit and he would preach and everybody knew he was wrapping it up when he reached and grabbed the watch and put it back on his wrist. Well, one Sunday he took the watch off and he put it on the pulpit and he's preaching away, preaching away, preaching away. He reaches up, he puts it back on his wrist and one of my nieces is like, great, this is about to be over. And then he took it back off again and set it back on the pulpit and in in a crowd of 3000 people, she went, Oh no. <laughs> yeah, and everybody knew what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah. So God's solution for the failure of his people is to send people to tell them, to speak to them for him. He knows they're weak. He knows they're discouraged. He knows they're intimidated. And he knows that they've been stuck in this rut for 16 years. So what does he do? He raises up Haggai and Zechariah to go speak to the people. Now, here's the thing. I want to just go ahead and, and say this at the outset. What happens? A miracle Dead people begin to act like living people. They hear the word of God. They hear the plan of God. They hear the heart of God. They hear about the work of God. And what happens? We read in verse 2, the leaders of the people get up and they begin to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. 
And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Why do I say that's a miracle? And, and those of you who know me know that I, I, I like to define miracles pretty narrowly. Um, the, the, the truth is, uh, anytime one of us hears the truth of God and believes it and acts on it, That is a profound thing. The reason why I say that is how many times have you heard the word of God, believed it, and gone away as if you never heard it, as if it just slid right off your hearts, right? So this is a pretty profound thing for us to see this and to, to, to be encouraged today that there are, that, that God actually can move and work in such a way that the proclamation of his truth, that, that the words we hear about the work that he has done, the kingdom that he is establishing, the purpose and the mission for which he has called his people together, that, that we can be reminded of that and the spirit of God will take that word and take that truth in such a way that it will cause us to actually come alive and respond and act on the thing that we've heard. It's a pretty powerful and profound thing. It is, it is amazing to see that. And one of the things that we note here in this, this text about from Ezra is we're not told that Haggai and Zechariah were outstanding orators or that they were remarkable preachers or, or that they had, you know, a great vision or, or any of those things. They simply got up and did what God empowered and called them to do and the people of God were changed. And the work of God that had lain dormant for 16 years suddenly begins again. So I think it's important for us as we, as we look at that and think about that today to look at these two prophets and just take a, a quick uh, once over this morning on what their message was and how it was that God used this to change his people, to renew them, and to cause them to stop living in in kind of self-seeking ways and suddenly remember why they were in Jerusalem in the first place, right? So let's look first at Haggai. We don't know very much about him. Uh, In fact, there's a book in the Bible in the Old Testament called Haggai. It's very short. Uh, it's It's a tiny little book. And so what we know about him and what, what little bit we know about him is what's mentioned here and what is written in the book that's, uh, that's named after him. And what's remarkable about the book of Haggai is that it covers roughly four months in the year 520 BC. We, there's no Haggai before that. There's no Haggai after that. So he shows up for four months and that's it, which is very frustrating about the Bible, right? Because one of the things we would like about the Bible is we'd like the backstory. Did, did, what was Haggai's Instagram page like? Right? What, what was, did he like chocolate? Did he like, what did he like? You know, what, was he a Redskins fan or was he a Cowboys fan? You know, what, what, what about him? Right? We don't, we, what were his mom and dad like? We, we don't know anything about that. Right? And it's the, the Bible frustrates us a lot like that because we have all these things that we think are important that we would like to know about. And what God wants us to know about is for four months in 520 BC, I raised up this man, Haggai. He preached four sermons, actually two of them on one day, and I used him to change the course of history. 
That's all you need to know. I mean, it's not unlike the way the Gospels work. You know, we read the Gospels and we think that, uh, well, it tells us the story of Jesus' life. Well, yeah, if you if you read all four of the Gospels and you put them together, you you find out about what was going on before Jesus was born. You find out he's born and you find out that he goes to Egypt and then he returns. And then there's not a whole lot going on there until he's 12. And then he has that encounter with the the uh, the priests in the temple. And then we don't see him again until he's a full grown man. Some people say around 30 years old. His ministry lasts about three years. And we think that the gospel covers those three years, but actually the big, the biggest chunk of the gospels, all of them, is given over to the last week he was alive. Because that's what's really important. <laughs> now we think we'd like to know about all these other things, you know. Uh, but, but God kind of cuts through all of that and says, here's what really matters. And so here's Haggai. We don't know a lot about him. And we kind of, you know, maybe you think, well, I feel bad about him. I hope Haggai didn't have a bad self-image because, you know, God didn't tell us more about him or didn't use him in more profound ways. I'm certain when you meet Haggai in heaven, he'll be happy that God used him for those four months. And the four sermons that he preached, God has seen fit to put in the Bible. And you can go pick them up and read them now. Trust me. In 2,500 years... Nobody's going to be reading my sermons, right? <laughs> right? So the reality is, the, this, this is a pretty profound thing for us to see. So what is it about Haggai that makes him uh, so effective? Well, his first recorded words, when we read about him as he shows up on the scene, I don't know where he preached this sermon, if it was out on the streets or on the ruin of the temple, probably on the ruin of the temple. That would have been a very nice touch, I think, right? And he, he says uh, this, the very first things out of his mouth, speaking for God, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild, keep going, Scott, the house of the Lord. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house Lies in ruins for 16 years. Go back. Scott, go back. His first recorded words are followed. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I have never, you know, for years people try to get me to um, title sermons. It takes too much energy. And... And creativity to come up with that every week. So I just don't do that. But if Haggai were to write a title to this, it would be God, you can wait. God, you can wait. That's what the people are saying. We'll get around to your house after I get my house built. Right? So God raises up Haggai and he says, it is time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now, you may think, you know, I, I don't know if paneling is cool anymore. I don't I don't I don't know whether people panel their houses much anymore. I don't see a lot of paneling, but, you know, what do I know? I don't I don't like home and garden TV, but I one of the things that. um uh, we read about in the Old Testament, whenever you read about somebody who had a paneled house, they tended to be rich or royalty. And so there's some thought that even the wood that was sent off to be used to rebuild the temple is now being reappropriated to build some fine houses, some fine homes in Jerusalem, right? Nice houses, really nice houses, house beautiful, 
kind of houses. Um, and so what's what's happening here is God's saying, hey, you guys are building these great houses. You're the prophet of Haggai. You're doing you're doing this great thing. It's been 16 years. No progress on my house. Now, the, one of the things that is that is uh, uh, pretty profound about that is we think, well, you know, was that was that an effective message? You know, was there 16 years of silence before God comes and he speaks to the people about their their self-serving, selfish ways? Well, the truth is God speaks now through his prophets. But for 16 years, he's been busy. Really busy working on these people. Because he says this, consider your ways. He says, consider your ways a number of times. But he says here, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is ever warm. And he who earns wages puts them in a bag with holes. Right? Let me go back and read that again. I, I think that's a pretty profound passage. Uh, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is ever warm, right? You build paneled houses, but it's not good enough, right? And he who earns wages puts them in a bag with holes, See, even though it may seem like God has been silent for these people for 16 years, he has been busy loving them. And he has been busy loving them by frustrating their selfish, self-seeking ways. He has been loving them by making them dissatisfied with their lives. He is, he, th- these people think that, you know, here we are in Jerusalem. What's the most important thing for me to do is to build a really nice house and to pour all of my resources and all of my time and all of my energy into this and that I will have life. And what God says is you've been sowing, but you know what? You're not harvesting very much. You're making clothes, but you're still cold. You're, you're, uh, you, you eat and you're never filled. You're never satisfied. Why? Well, God doesn't want you to be satisfied with those things. <laughs> that, that, that you become satisfied with those things and, and, and you begin to make them ultimate things, right? And so what God's doing is frustrating the very desires of the people and that's his mercy to them. That's that by, by, by doing this, he's saying to them, hey, listen, it's time for you to kind of reorient yourself and quit trying to find your life and your satisfaction in your stuff or in your food and those sorts of things. But remember the purpose for which I made you, the purpose for which I sent you there. I have something for you that's even better. When, uh, when I was in seminary, I went to school with uh, a seminary with a guy who was, had come to school late in life. He had, uh, uh, Grown up, lived uh, the early part of his life in some really obscure kind of hollow near Bristol, uh, Tennessee, and he uh, was a welder. And uh, that was his pathway out of Appalachia. And uh, during his career as being a welder, he um, uh, decided that God, and I believe accurately, God was calling him into ministry, and he went into ministry. So he, he welded some to, to, to pay his and his family's expenses while he was in seminary. And um, he and I were talking one day. And he said that he had made the decision when he went to seminary that he would make enough money to put himself through school and he wouldn't give. 
that God, you know, that he could, he didn't need to give because he was in seminary. And so any kind of thought that, you know, maybe I should be generous was out the window because he's in school. He was making money. He's making less money now. And so he should just spend everything on himself. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, what happened with that? He says, God poked holes in my pockets. Now, I, I don't know whether that happened or not, but I know I don't want God poking any holes in any part of me anywhere ever, right? <laughs> Listen, God is frustrated. If you're frustrated this morning, if you've been thinking, if I can just attain this, if I can just get people to think of me this way, if I can just achieve this, if I could just get this, then everything in life will come together. For years, literally years, my, um, my middle child pursued one goal, being the state champion in cross country. It consumed him. And I was kind of glad it consumed him because... You know, he could have been consumed. He was a consumer himself and, uh, and he could have been quite consumed by other things, but that consumed him and he did it. And I was so pumped. I was screaming at him the whole way. And, you know, he wins the race. He gets the silver cup. And that night he's sitting on the sofa and he looks at me and he's like, so this is it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's it, man. That's it. You're not in heaven yet, and uh, uh, that's it. And guess what? The sun's going to come up tomorrow, and even though you're a state champion, you're still taking that trash out. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's, a, it's good that we get frustrated by that because we would take these things that we think are so important and make them ultimate things. So God's been at work in these people. He's not been silent. And this frustrating of their, of their self-seeking ways, their selfish ways, is his mercy, right? Next slide. So uh, let's look at Zechariah really quickly. Zechariah is not, not nearly uh, as direct as Haggai. His ministry lasts about two years. His book is about 12 chapters long. And he takes a big picture. He is He's a visionary. In fact, uh, half of his book is taken up with eight visions, eight night visions. And then he paints a, a beautiful picture of, of the future that God has for, for his people. And it's, it, there's some pretty profound visions, some pretty profound pictures. But the theme that runs throughout Zechariah is that what he wants to move the people towards rebuilding the temple because of the purpose of the temple, right? Next slide. Um, the, because we may be thinking buildings don't matter. Temples don't matter. Why is God so eager for them to do that? We can worship God anywhere. Well, in this, in this case, in this place, it was important for God to have the temple rebuilt. Why? Because the temple was not just a place of worship. The temple was not just a place of, of national pride or religious pride or a place where you went to do your religious duties. The temple primarily existed for one reason. That is where sin was dealt with. It's got altars. It's where you bring your your, your sacrifices. And so the point of the temple day in and day out 
was the slaughter of these animals, the, 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 the spilling of blood, so that the people would see and smell there in the middle of their city this, this worship going on that was dealing with sin. Now, it was important for the temple to get built because the, these people needed to understand that their biggest problem and their biggest issue, that what God had for them was to have their sin atoned for, right? And so he, he says, and he looks forward to the day that there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There's that great picture where where God takes the filthy uh, uh, robes off of the priest, Joshua, and puts clean robes on him. That the, the vision that Zechariah had was, we need to get the temple built because the temple is going to remind us of <clears throat> our need to have our sin dealt with and that God will deal with our sin, that he will make atonement for our sin, and that a day will come where God will come and make full atonement for our sins, where the temple will come in the flesh and our sins will be atoned for once and for all. You see, that that was why it was so important for the temple to get rebuilt. Not because, you know, there was something, there, you know, they needed a place. It was because it was instructive to the people that sin had to be dealt with. Because you and I will forget. You think what you, you and I think, we tend to think that there are many other things about our lives that we need more than our sin handled, than our sin atoned for. What we, what we tend to think is, you know, we, we need this, and I gotta have this today, like a paneled house. Or I've gotta have this meal, or this thing, or this relationship, or this reputation, or this thing. When, when really, ultimately, the thing that is of ultimate importance for us is that that thing which will kill us and rob us of life must be atoned for. Not just punished, but atoned for. And so what God is doing here by requiring the people to get busy about building the temple, again in his mercy, is he's, he is saying to us and to them, your problem and my problem is our sin. Now you and I, we, we like to manage it. We like to ignore it. We like to minimize it. Uh, we like to cover it up. We like to, as our first parents did in the garden, what do, they, what do we do? We hide and we make fig leaves to cover our nakedness and our shame. But what God does with our sin is he brings Jesus Christ into the world to make full atonement, full atonement for our sin. And so the importance of the temple was to train the people to re-remind them that the issue before them was what, what would God do with our sin? Well, Jesus makes full atonement. He removes our sin from us once and for all. And then lastly, um, we read at the end of chapter 4, right, that it's in the second year of King Darius that this happened. Now, you can go back and you can read lots of books and lots of stories about what was going on in the world. Great things, important things, political things, uh, intrigue, all of that. What does God's attention, what is, what is his eye and his heart focused on? 
What does he want us and the rest of the world to see as what is most important? Not what's going on with Darius, but what's going on with this little group of people in this ruined city struggling to do what they were sent there to do. That his attention and his heart is focused upon that. One of the things that's important for, for us to, to, uh, to understand today is that God's attention, his most interest and care, his focus is on his people and his kingdom. That's what matters. That's what has his heart. And so as he orders the affairs of the world, as he his providence and his his care and his direction of things is for his glory, but for the good of his people. Right. And so we may look about us. We may be seeing all these things that go on around us that seem so big and so important that are that are so key. But the fact is God's attention, just as it was here, is on us. Failing. Weak, intimidated, small, largely ignored. But that's where God's attention is. If you want to know where the action is in the world today, it's not in Washington, D.C. It's not in Nevada. It's not in South Carolina. It's not in Afghanistan. It's wherever the people of God are gathered together. That's where the real action is. And that's where God's heart and mind is focused. You know, that's that's good for us to be reminded of that because it seems to us so often that these things that we hear about and we see about are so overwhelming. And yet, if we look... We can see exactly where God is at work in and through and for his people. Hear the words of institution of the Lord's Supper as they come from Matthew chapter 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's uh, confess our sins together. Almighty Father, we are gathered before you the maker of heaven and earth, whose chosen dwelling place is with the broken and contrite. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. You call us to worship you in spirit and in truth, but we often worship only what we wish you to be. We have sought concessions when we required guidance. We have used your gifts for private ambition instead of for your mission and glory. We use worship to shape you 
rather than seeking to be formed into the likeness of the one we worship. You are exceedingly jealous for your church. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name. And he gave it to his disciples. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim your communion with him in that death. And you proclaim that your sin, past, present, and future, has been fully atoned for. No need for a building of a temple with ongoing sacrifices because God has fulfilled that, fulfilled the role of the temple and the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have your sins Fully atoned for. So that means quit atoning for your sins or attempting to atone for your sins and quit trying to get other people to atone for their sins. We have the opportunity this morning to be reminded of that as we come to the table to eat and drink this, that Jesus' death is the once for all sacrifice that our sin required. No longer do I need to cover myself with fig leaves. I've been covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's what we proclaim when we eat and drink this cup. If that's true of you today, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere. He invites you uh, to come and uh, to be renewed and to be restored. Uh, as we saw earlier uh, in the service, we saw these three young women come and stand before us and testify to the work of God uh, in their lives and to their faith. And so uh, Grace Ding, Fields Gravit, and Jane Martin Brown and their families, when the elders and deacons come up front this morning to assist me, you guys and your families will come up first uh, to take communion to lead uh, the rest of us in taking the Lord's Supper. 